welcome back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad, in print and online, 24-7. But every Monday, I am right here on AdrenalineRadio.com. Today, unfortunately, I'm not in studio. I got a late night email about two interviews I've been waiting for that came through, and they are this morning. So I am doing this pre-record at 4 o'clock in the morning for you uh, from my house. So pardon the uh, the variances in the audio quality uh, throughout the various set pre-recorded segments here, but I don't think it's going to detract from the content at all. Of course, event big news, Avengers was dethroned this weekend by John Wick 3 Parabellum. See it, see it, see it. And another film that you should put on your radar to see this week is none other than Trial by Fire, directed by Ed Zwick and starring Laura Dern and Jack O'Connell. This is actually based on the true story of Cameron Todd Willingham, a man who was charged with triple homicide and convicted for the murder of his three young daughters on December 23rd of 1991, when he allegedly set his home on fire with his daughters inside and left them to die. Uh, Willingham was convicted by the Texas courts and sentenced to death. He was executed in 2004. In 2009, David Gran wrote an article, Trial by Fire, which appeared in The New Yorker. And what he did was take a look back on Willingham and on capital punishment, the death penalty, and particularly Texas. What made this Willingham story so compelling and does to this day is the fact that while he was on death row, he began corresponding with a woman named Elizabeth Gilbert. She was a mother of two, divorced, a writer, a playwright. She just started corresponding with him. And slowly, they began to develop a friendship. And she began to understand him and see that he's not this heinous creature who was being portrayed by so many at the time. And she had doubts. She started digging and digging hard into the original trial, into the police investigation, into the trial transcripts, and found many, many discrepancies. Uh, She discovered that he really was provided a very poor defense, and she started fighting along with his appellate lawyer to get the conviction overturned, get a new trial, something, go through the legal process to make sure that Todd Willingham, if he was in fact being being sentenced to death, that it was done right righteously and with the evi- actual evidence and science to support it. Uh, it's a fascinating, fascinating story. I can't recommend this highly enough for you to see the film. Laura Dern is spellbinding as Elizabeth Gilbert. Jack O'Connell is amazing as Willingham. And what Ed Swick does directing this film is beautifully done. Uh, use of camera and lighting helps tell the emotional tale. And one of the great things about this film is Elizabeth Gilbert kept all of the letters between she and Todd. And she turned those over so that Laura, Jack, Ed had use of the letters in, to help develop the characters. And in fact... I spoke with Laura the other day, and she said there are numerous voiceovers, voiceover montages of each one reading letters in the film. They are the actual letters. So it adds that much more gravitas and poignancy to this story, to this film. It's an eye-opener. It speaks to our social consciousness and to the injustice within the justice system today. It is in theaters now see it, see it, see it. This coming weekend for Memorial Day, (laughs) family-friendly fun with Aladdin, live-action Aladdin, directed by Guy Ritchie uh, and starring Will Smith as the genie. 
is out this weekend, and I got to tell you, it deliver Aladdin delivers some dazzling visual splendor, thanks in particular to the production design from Gemma Jackson and the costuming. But be warned, the real scene stealers are a monkey, a tiger, a magic carpet, and a very jiggy genie. Uh, fantasy reigns supreme. We've got an embargo on reviews until the 22nd this week, so I can't go into too much detail. But what I can tell you is a real standout is a new character, Dahlia, who is the handmaiden to Princess Jasmine, uh, who is played by Princess Jasmine is Naomi Scott. And Dahlia, this new character, is played by Nassim Pedrad. She is outstanding and you put her together with Will Smith in scenes and you will find yourself laughing hysterically this is a whole new world with live action and a very welcome one Um, it is something for the whole family yesterday during the press day I had a chance to ask Gemma Jackson about her impeccable production design because unlike so many films where you're looking at production design and you only have to worry about eye level with this particular film, because we are taking a magic carpet ride and looking down upon the city. She had to worry about looking from above, down, as well as looking straight ahead. I asked her about that, and of course, Will Smith chimed in. Take a listen. Well, congratulations, all of you. Uh, number one, I'm thrilled to see a very jiggy jiggy. level than what most production designers have to do because we're not just looking at eye level. You have to worry about the overhead levels and the view from the world above looking down. What were some of the challenges and your considerations in your production design to give us the bird's eye view and the street view? That's um, quite difficult to to answer. Um, I think what happens is you... um, you start to create your whole world, and it takes me over as much as anything else. So the world just kind of grows up. I think you have to realize that also a lot of, I was working very closely with Jazz Jarrett, Chaz Jarrett, who is the visual effects person. So we kind of worked together on some of the overhead worlds. We built models, we worked it all out very sort of mathematically as to how you'd see everything. Um, but I think the world, um, it just kind of grew as the, with the script, with the characters, with the, a lot of the, um, the dance uh, sequences needed to be very seriously choreographed. And I had to work very carefully with them. So that there'd be 10 yards before they jump something, 20 feet before they'd fall. You know, it was all kind of requirements. It was like, uh, it's very hard to explain. I don't know if help me here. But, um, it, it kind of grows, they work together, so I'm visually hanging on to my vision and not wanting to lose any element of that. Meanwhile, they all have to do all these extraordinary feats. So we all work together, really. I think if that answers any of your questions. <laughs> well, what, what happened also that is spectacular as, as an actor, and it's interesting, because uh, you know, we've never done an interview or anything together, so it's interesting for me to uh, be here with you and hear you discuss those things. The, the ultimate compliment from the actor's point of view is we were transported to the time and place. And that's what happened when we walked on that set. When you walked through, it was, ooh, it's, it was in the textures of the walls and all of that. And the stairs were real. You could go up and go out onto the rooftop. And all, you know, it, it, was, uh, it was a powerful way to transport the actors into the emotions and the smells of the of the, the time and place. Thank you. Will. I mean, I have to say, I enjoyed every single moment of it. Right. I've never had such fun as I have building building that world. Actually. That's Another film, it's a little early to talk about. It hits theaters on the following week on May 31st. Rocket Man. 
You do not want to miss this one. What Bohemian Rhapsody was for Freddie Mercury and Queen last year, that is what Rocket Man is for Elton John this year. And I got to tell you, last year when I saw Bohemian Rhapsody at the first LA press screening, I called it then, hand Rami Malek the Oscar now for his portrayal of Freddie Mercury. Saying about Rocket Man, hand Taron Edgerton the Oscar now for his performance as Elton John. And going a step further in his performance as Elton John in Rocket Man, Taron does all of his own singing as well. So he's acting, he's singing, he is amazing. But we'll talk more about Rocket Man in the weeks to come, but put that on your, on your movie radar as well. But now let's turn our attention to television, and most notably, Yellowstone. Yellowstone was a breakout series for the Paramount Network last year that I actually I fell in love with. It stars Kevin Costner and boasting an exemplary cast. It's the Old West meets Modern West. No pun intended as to Kevin's band. Um, there's, it's an ensemble cast in this modern Western that retains the mores and the touchstones of the Old West, which are such a recognizable part of the tapestry that is America. Costner is John Dutton, is a sixth-generation homesteader and patriarch of a powerful, complicated family of ranchers. The Dutton Ranch is the largest contiguous ranch in the United States, but suffers from the conflicts arising from its borders. An Indian reservation, America's first national park, and an expanding local town complete with land grabbers and corrupt politicians. In addition to Costner, the other principal cast members adding to the fabric of Yellowstone are Luke Grimes, Kelly Riley, Wes Bentley, Cole Hauser, uh, uh, Brecken Merrill, Jefferson White, Danny Houston, and Gil Birmingham, who delivers an outstanding performance as Native American Thomas Rainwater. Uh, I've had the opportunity to speak with some of the below-the-line master craftsmen, Ruth DeJong, production designer. Oscar winner Ruth Carter, who you may recall just picked up her Oscar for Black Panther costume design. Uh, She, uh, Ruth Carter, handled the costume design for Yellowstone. Ben Richardson, um, cinematographer. Ben first really broke onto the scene with Beasts of the Southern Wild a number of years ago and has continued to just dazzle us with little indie gems Move it, doing some television work, but has teamed up with writer, director, creator Taylor Sheridan, uh, not only with Wind River last year, which starred Jeremy Renner and Elizabeth Olsen, but on Yellowstone. I also have had a chance to speak with Brian Tyler, the composer of the music for Yellowstone. And, and what's fascinating about Yellowstone and its music is the fact that the entire production, Taylor Sheridan treated as if a, a 10-hour feature film, a cohesiveness that you don't normally see in television, a continuous thread, and building upon themes and storylines uh, that, that continue that play out. And the music is such a key part to the world of John Dutton and of Yellowstone. And Brian's work is exemplary with every note, every theme, uh, the theme music, the theme for each character, for the theme for the Dutton Ranch, the theme for it's very akin to what you experience if you see if you hear something by Max Steiner or Bernard Herrmann from back in the day, particularly uh, Max Steiner Gone with the Wind. Everything is thematically connected. And even the smallest, smallest audit, uh, compositions are all thematically connected back to the main theme of Yellowstone. Um, and, of course, the editors. You've got to have your editors. Your editors can make or break, or break you. And I've been, I was lucky enough to speak with Gary Roach and Evan Algren about editing Yellowstone. And what's interesting is that Gary and Evan are back for season two. Unfortunately, or fortunately, Taylor himself 
And then, right now, they are actually currently off location scouting for their next project together. Ruth Carter could not do season two because she had to embark on the press tour when they started preparation and shooting for some little film called Black Panther. Ruth Dijon, production designer, has also moved on. Brian Tyler is still composing the music. And of note to all you Marvel fans out there, Brian Tyler actually wrote, has, has done the scoring for several Marvel films, and at one point, the Marvel theme music. I want you to hear part of excerpts of my interviews with these great craftsmen from Yellowstone. And I want to start with Ruth Dijon, the production designer. Because what's very key here, particularly with this series, uh, the production design, the costume design, and the cinematography really set the stage for the world that unfolds in Yellowstone. Um, and as I said, it defies the episodic format. And, it has, and Yellowstone has all the hall- hallmarks of a feature film in its scope and in, in Sheridan's approach to filmmaking. But it's these three, it's the two Ruths and Ben, that are really integral to creating and establishing the visual and emotional texture and continuity of the series, not only for season one, but laying the foundation as the work is handed off to the new crew of artisans for season two, which debuts in June, by the way. So take a listen right now. We'll start with Ruth Dijon. And Ruth, I've watched her trajectory uh, going back to 2005. 2006, with a little film she did called Swedish Auto that had its premiere at the LA Film Festival that year. It starred Lucas Haas and January Jones. Number uh, in 2012, she was back at LA Film Festival with a western, a true old western, period western, Dead Man's Burden for Jared Moshe. And now here she is doing a modern western for Taylor Sheridan with Paramount. Uh, with Ye- with Yellowstone. So take a listen to, we'll start with Ruth Dijon and her production design and hear what she has to say about crafting and designing Yellowstone. Well, I know that the Dutton Ranch, that's shot at the Chief Joseph Ranch in Montana. So that's pretty much established. But I'm curious how you then go in and tweak that uh, and then create the production design to create this world of John Dutton primarily because yeah. then his children, you know, they splinter out as do all of the, you know, Gil Bingham, uh, Birmingham's character, yeah. Danny Houston's character. We get the politics. We get the land grabbers. We get the Native Americans. Everything is so distinctly different but cohesive, and that all falls on you. I mean, finding the ranch itself was very, very hard. Um, you know, <coughs> Kevin Costner, um, his character John Dutton has this statement that says, leverage is knowing if somebody had all the money in the world, this is what they'd buy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how do you take that and give the view, how does the viewer believe that, you know, meaning no matter... And so it was very daunting to say, I've got to find something that's beyond epic, that the scale is correct, the period is correct, it fits the story. You know, I worked with Taylor a lot on who is this family, how long have they been there, why did they settle there? Um, And then dealing with what he wrote about how the ranch is in constant conflict with its borders, the town is expanding, the reservation, the national park. How do you encompass all of that in a two-second, you know, here you see it, there you see it, there you see it, and have someone actually believe um, that it's authentic, it's justifiable, it's expansive, it's a big sky. And we were based in Utah, and I was like, it's not, we can't, I'm not do, I'm not finding this ranch in Utah. You know, the studio for incentives wanted me to find it there. Um, it, and I said, I... I just got on a plane. I went to Montana for two weeks with our supervising location manager, Charles Skinner. And I was like, we've got to find this. 
Taylor wrote the script in Livingston and they based it along, you know, it's supposed to be the largest contiguous ranch that borders Yellowstone, which is completely fictitious. Mm-hmm. But I was like, it's got to, it's got to be that landscape. There's no landscape but Dubuque's Paradise Valley. Right. And we couldn't, high and low, we couldn't find a ranch that was fitting in Livingston because either they had all been, they were incredible and the, the, the landscapes were incredible, but the houses were either modernized or just not grand enough. Mm-hmm. And we went to the film commission. We went to a, but I was like, give me every single historic ranch in this entire state. And I just went through files and we stumbled across Chief Joseph and it was in the Bitterroot Valley, which is four hours on the other side of the state. And I was like, we've got to go see this. We jumped in the car one morning. We were in Livingston, staying in hotels in Bozeman. It was just myself and the studio the whole time screaming at me, come back to Utah. We're not going to support you there. We're not. Oh, God. And I was like, Taylor, just give me a few more days. Give me another week. I will find this. And so it was one of those just, I was like, they're going to fire me. <laughs> oh. This is crazy. But drove to Chief Joseph, cold called. Um, push the gate button on the code. Had no idea if the corporation owned it, if it was a single family, who who was there. They graciously opened it. It was privately owned by a family, and we kind of explained what we were doing. He was very hesitant, like, sure, you can look at it. But it fit the bill across the board being, um, you know, when it was built. And just the whole story of that ranch the Bitterroot is a very closed valley. It's not expansive, like, um, but this specific ranch just happened to have a, a, a gap and an opening, and it had the big sky, and it had the rolling fields, as you saw, and it had the trees off, set off. So it just kind of, I was like, this is it. We ended up, we used the great room in that ranch, and we used all the barns. I completely rebuilt all the corral systems from scratch. Wow. Um, and we, we, the white barns were there. We added the Y for Yellowstone, but then we, we tore down every fence and rebuilt all of that. Um, and then we all of the bedroom set we did on stage, uh-huh. but in the ilk, I found a company in Montana that worked. They were all real log. We milled everything. So I did it in a very traditional way as fast as I could, wow. which is not the studio way. But I was like, if this is going to be, I mean, that's just the way I work. But uh, And my, my construction team was incredible. So they, they came down to Utah, this log cabin company. And, you know, John Dutton's bedroom, Beth's bedroom, Jamie's bedroom, all of those you think are in the house, but they're not. They're on stage. The great room, which is the massive living room, yeah. we shot practically on at the ranch inside i mean tried to mirror that same aesthetic in all in all the other rooms well i have to say i want john dutton's bedroom for me i love i love that bedroom (laughs) (coughs) yeah it was a lot of fun it was fun and i just felt like we were living in this like ralph lauren sort of you know just it, it was very uh it was it was just so much fun to create and to um to put together and and you know just dive into this into the it's a modern day it, it, you know western honestly and, and how many people truly live um, today and trying to keep it grounded and practical but yet as over the top as John Dunn is um, I just I, I kept striving for believability i hope that was executed you never know if someone's like ah. <laughs> i mean there is not a but. minute that i looking at the ranch looking at the interiors that you built on the sound stages you feel the six generations you feel the history of the dutton family okay oh, in that house and you definitely feel the authenticity um, it, it is absolutely amazing. And to know that you rebuilt all the corrals, I mean, those are some nice corrals out there. Let me tell you. Yeah. Uh, they, th- those costs are pretty penny, <laughs> Yeah, but, but it was worth it. And it, they needed to be, cause we had real livestock, the cattle, the buffalo, the horses, and they, it, it, the corrals were all kind of falling apart. 
previous um, all my location photos, they're just, everything is leaning, everything was rotted, and it needed to be a working ranch, both for our shooting purposes, but also just to, to for you to believe, I mean, this guy is not running a janky operation. Yeah, I mean, if he's that rich and has the biggest contiguous ranch anywhere, um, yeah, we need, we need to know that he has the money to do this. Um, yeah. And that it definitely comes across. But then you have to go and you've got to work on a town and you have to work on a reservation and you have to capture, you know, Jamie's whole world, that legal world, that political world. And that while you retain a lot of the earthy feel and the wood tones that you really contemporize. And that we built from scratch. I mean, Jamie, the, we, we found a piece of land in Utah that we excavated roads into it, and it, it was literally a sagebrush landscape. So the reservation that you saw in that initial, in the pilot, when you come in, the car comes in, all those roads we excavated. And then we plopped down each trailer and corrals and gardens and all the layers of the junk and the old cars and all of that. So that we just built from the ground up. Wow. And we bought we bought the trailers from like, you know, trailer lots in Montana and, and shipped them. I think each trailer was like a couple grand and then shipped them on wide loads and plopped them down there. Your shipping might have cost more than the trailers. Oh. I know. I know. It probably did. <laughs> so you know, here you, you know, yeah, here you are creating this world, this landscape for this wealthy, wealthy family where money is no object, but money had to be an object for you to create this world. Yes. You know where, yes, uh, you know where did you have to pull back from your vision? Not even Taylor's vision, but your vision. Was there anywhere that where you had to sacrifice something because the production company is not doesn't have the same value as John Dutton? I think where where I felt I personally had to sacrifice was not getting to shoot this in its entirety in Montana mm-hmm. and not getting to shoot as much as I wanted in Bozeman and in Livingston and in the park. All of that I pushed. I had to put, I had to, I was, they're like, fine, you can have your ranch in Montana and that's it. And everything else you have to duplicate in Utah. So you, you have to find a downtown Bozeman in Utah. And we found that in Ogden, which, you know, do the parking spaces, are they the same? No. And like, there's so many little things that make me cringe, Mm -hmm. but it was the closest match. And I knew the ranch had to, had to, I was not, I was just not gonna um, give give that one up. So I basically said, "Fine, I will give you everything in Utah, including the Indian Reservation, which should have been in Montana. It was sort of written up after the Crow Reservation. Mm-hmm. And unless someone did some extensive research, there are subtle differences within the topography and landscape of Utah and Montana. There just are, but." I felt we cheated it as best we could. So many of the little, I mean, we had over 275, 85 sets. It was bonkers. Furthering the look of Yellowstone is the work from costume designer Ruth Carter. And what she's so passionate when you speak with her about anything, be it Black Panther, be it Yellowstone, be it her civil rights films uh, that she's done with Spike Lee and Lee Daniels. But here, working with Taylor Sheridan and Kevin Costner, even Ruth admits she had to up her, the, her own game because of the familiarity these two men have with the world being portrayed. Sheridan lives this lifestyle, and it pushed Ruth even further. And she reached out to longstanding ranch wear and workwear companies to find the perfect jeans or perfect shirts. She worked with new fabrics and then had to age everything to achieve a lived-in look necessary for the characters, particularly all the ranch hands and the cowboys. Uh, one of the things that she was very proud of, and this comes as no surprise, is that Kevin Costner is completely custom-made from head to toe, including his jeans. 
And a fun little tidbit that she shared is that his favorite jeans, they don't even make the brand anymore. Uh, so she actually went out and found the correct gauge denim and then custom made the jeans to Costner's specifications. And, you know, every project had its hurdles. And because she was striving so hard for authenticity with outdoor wear, with the ranch wear, and most notably with the tribal customs. she Because the Native American tribes uh, in this geographic area and featured in Yellowstone are the Crow, she actually, all the beadwork is beadwork authentic to the Crow Native American tribe. And some of it is absolutely outstanding. It's beautiful. And what wasn't handmade was sourced from the tribal area uh, where they were shooting. So just absolutely great attention to detail. That is, it just dazzles when you look at this. And then you have to look at the contrast to creating costuming for Danny Houston, who is not part of the Dutton family, and he is somewhat of a of a uh, snake oil salesman, in a manner of speaking. Wes Bentley, who plays John Dutton's son, Jamie. He's a lawyer, political aspirations. He's got to be decked out in nice, you know, present-day suits, but with the slight western touch and look for that region of the country so Ruth put a lot into this so take a listen to a little bit of what Ruth had to say about creating the costuming look for Yellowstone and I have to say Ruth you have captured the utter and complete feel of the American Old West with the designs, with the true-to-life true denim, um, the, the leather chaps. Mm-hmm. The, but then you up the ante and you modernize it and you take those chaps mm-hmm. and you put some beautiful pocket designs on some of them mm-hmm. and you contemporize mm-hmm. it. Then you throw in uh, the diversity between the Dutton ranching family. We've got Jamie Dutton and his political aspirations, um, yeah. and then the beauty of the traditional Native American costuming. Wow, yeah, Ruth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you cover it all in this series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've got to ask how much research you did for this amount of costuming and everything that you had to infuse into it from our American history. Well, you know, I have to go to the source. And um, when you work with someone like Taylor Sheridan, it's very important that, that you know that he, he, he lives this lifestyle. He cares about the, the people that are part of this life. And he cares about the authenticity of how, how we present ourselves. And so with... You know, coming on to the team um, with him as our leader and our writer and the writer of the story, um, and then working with someone like Kevin Costner, who has such a long history of knowing the 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 West, the history of of the ranch wear and the history of the Native Americans. You can't deal with two people who are as strong as they are and come short-sighted. <laughs> so, you know, going to the stores to understand what's important to Native Americans, that they not be um, my, uh, dealt with in a myopic way, the same way we dealt with Africa. Right. It's the same thing for the Native Americans. They don't want to... Um, just be portrayed as one general group. The Crow are different from the Southwest, are different from the Northeast, and they can tell you the differences. They can tell you their tradition. They can tell you the material, the beadwork, how different it is from place to place, from group to group. 
And so you you don't want to offend people because they're a big part of telling this story. And also the cowboys. Um, there is a difference in the hat from uh, Montana to Texas. Yeah. So if you're telling the story of the Midwest, you can't have a Texan look. And also, I learned so much between the difference from a rodeo type of uh, cowboy to a rancher to a to a ranch hand. To, I just just learned all of the psychology and the look, the difference of the look. And it, it, it's, it, it becomes very fascinating because of the whole world to learn that we are not given this history. We are not taught this history in school. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I've always loved the Old West. I, I For many decades now, I've been friends. Sadly, many are dying off. But a lot of the, the stuntmen and the actors who were in the old John Ford movies, you know, everything that, yeah. that brought us up. And they truly live, many of them live the cowboy lifestyle. Yeah, and, they do. So for me to see a film like this and your attention to detail, and as you mentioned, the difference is just in the hats that they're wearing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, but I have to say, is there anybody who wears cowboy boots, leather chaps, and a hat better than Kevin Costner? Nobody I can think of. (laughs) You have him looking just so perfect and in Mm -hmm. vests. Vests are so important to his character of John Dutton. Yes. Well, because of who he is, we uh, designed and made everything. So from his shirt, even he, he had a particular type of jeans mm-hmm. that he liked. And I had to go to a special um, uh, company that can make uh, denim because the, the, the style of jeans that um, Kevin Costner likes, they don't make anymore. Well, of course. We had to go through the steps of how to wash out the denim and get the fade perfect, how to not have those whiskers, or if we have some, have them in the right place so they look real. And it was a process. Wow. So he's custom done from head to toe. Well, let me tell you, I've never seen Kevin Costner look quite this good. Yeah, he looks great. He's not a bad. He's not bad on the eye, that guy. No, and but your costumes, your how you've outfitted him, is just mm-hmm. absolutely gorgeous. And then I take a look at the cowboys and the ranch hands. Yeah. And were you using off the rack uh, Levi's for them, or did you custom make their jeans with a particular gauge denim? Um, we went to. Um, we went to really special companies that, that do beautiful, um, beautiful gym. We did Times Ranch, does a great denim. Filson, we went to Filson. So we went to those companies that do outdoor, outdoor wear or ranch wear mm-hmm. that have really stepped up their game and are presenting the cowboy in a more modern way. Yeah. So, um, so it was, you know, it was those companies that had those great fits. Once we found a great fit for one of the other characters, we stuck with that. Right. So yeah. um, a lot of people worked with us, too, um, you know, Filson, like I said, and um, other companies that do uh, ranch wear and work wear. But, you know, that stuff, when it comes to you, you know, it's actually built for the real, the real guy. Right. So it's built to last. So when you get it, it's like someone sent you a a leather suitcase, and it's in the form of a vest. And so the time it took for us to break that stuff down was really, that was the hard part, because we wanted to show that guy that has owned these clothes for a long time, has roped some cattle, and has lived in the West, in the, in the inclement weather, mm-hmm. in these we didn't want it to all look brand new, and that was really hard because we had to provide 
you know, stunt doubles and multiples and things like that. So. And what would any TV series or film be without a cinematographer? Take a listen to the fabulous Ben Richardson as he talks about capturing the majestic West, uh, the Montana region of the United States, and using light and lens to help tell the story of John Dutton and his world of Yellowstone. You're known primarily for your film work. You've done some shorts. But you step in here to this series. Was that a big decision for you, or was it, it's Taylor wants you, you're going to do it because you just had such a successful uh, collaboration on Wind River? It was a little bit of both. Um, I'll be honest, I, I still, while, while our business seems to be moving towards uh, longer-form storytelling, um, I still sort of struggle with that medium um, because of its length, because of its... its um, it's kind of, in some ways, almost a lack of focus relative to feature storytelling. Mm-hmm. Feature film, um, you're able to to craft, if you like, a symphony. You can you can pick your themes, you can pick your motifs, and you can uh, explore and expand upon those during the the runtime of, of a 90 minute or a sort of 110 minute story. But with um, with the long form, you can't just kind of work in quite the same way without finding yourself being repetitive. Um, so the challenge for me was finding something, you know, for years my agents have been offering me series scripts and I just hadn't found anything that had worked out. Um, but then, of course, when Taylor called me and said he had something, not only do I, you know, truly, truly enjoy that collaboration with Taylor, um, the writing was just, you know, absolutely fantastic and Taylor's first comment to me was that we were going to shoot it like a movie anyway. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. and, and that's how it plays when you watch the series. It feels like a movie. And you take us through these beautiful visual arcs, and you, you've created different tone, visual tones for each of the characters, and also the various settings. And I find that really interesting with your work, Ben, is you really give us a visual texture um, with your lighting and your framing that distinguishes between the, the whole idea of poverty and wealth that permeates the battle that John Dutton has with everyone around him. And I'm curious how, exactly. you, how you and Taylor went about designing those particular, that particular feel through the lighting and the framing. By design, we we had, as you correctly state, we had these these sort of these these different worlds, these different environments, and each of them has their challenges and their hardships, and each of them has their beauty. And I think the thing that Taylor and I just tried to do above all was just to use our own eyes and use our own experience of those places and bring that to the framing. Um, in the reservation scenes, obviously, that's something that Taylor feels very passionately about and wanted to very clearly bring um, to the screen in a way that perhaps it hasn't really been seen before. Um, obviously, that was a theme he touched on in Wind River. Um, the idea that that this entire people have been brought to this way of life, which in, in a few select ways respects an ancient tradition and, a, and a, a grace and a beauty and an understanding of the landscape, but in other more essential ways, has been so limited by the fact that they are no longer able to move around a vast nation that it really isn't um, working the way it used to. And that's a, that's a sort of a constant struggle and something that obviously, you know, the first few episodes of Yellowstone touches on quite, um, quite deeply. Um, but equally out in that space it can be beautiful it can be wonderful and I think we tried to find um, some of that in those environments as well um, similarly with, with, with the Dutton Lodge which was actually shot on location in Montana as you know there are moments of you know true just majestic uh, 
splendor of, of the, the environment, the natural beauty of the weather, all the things, and we just tried to stay open to those. And the nature of the shoot was such that we just, at any moment, we could pivot, we could embrace something that was happening. You know, that's a, that's a kind of a, a method that I still do carry from B. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody knows what the plan was. They only know what they present you with. And if you throw the plan out on the day because something wonderful is happening, then that's a great move. Um, but equally, you know, Dutton's lodge out there and all the, the trappings he surrounded himself while trying to remain a man of kind of, of nature and a man of the land, he's kind of built himself this, this prison of, 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 of his, of both his family and his, his wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, really, I just, I found it, um, they were, they were new places to me. You know, I hadn't really seen a lot of Montana before. Right. It's just spectacular. So, yeah, I just tried to kind of react honestly um, with each each sort of new scene and each new idea. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love that you mentioned that the character of Dutton, he's made himself almost a prisoner in order to adhere to his code, his Western code of old that he's trying to, to retain in the 21st century. And... Yeah. Uh, you know, you do that so well within the lodge itself, as beautiful as it is, and as Ruth then recreated the interiors of the lodge uh, for other aspects of the film, you feel a sense of claustrophobia. You really bring that to life with your camera. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because I, I, I will confess, much as I, much as I love those spaces and I can understand why people embrace them and Taylor obviously that you know that's his choice and his aesthetic I actually personally find that um, the heavy wood and just the sheer just the sheer sort of weight of, of, of physical matter around you I actually find it quite oppressive and when mm-hmm. we were in the lodge and in, in the hotel we were staying in nearby there was something about it that it, I mean it's just not me <laughs> Um, and so I found it quite easy to understand how we could make that space both beautiful and majestic and, and also, as you say, claustrophobic, a little oppressive. And I tried to, wherever possible, feature just the sheer scale of the wood and the scale of the logs. Mm-hmm. And, and Rouge built everything um, from real materials. It was, it was quite an incredible um, piece of, uh, of design, both the stage work and the um, additional work she did on the, the lodge itself. Um, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, just these colossal pieces of tree just sliced and, you know, affixed against the walls and things. So I really did try and allow that to, you know, to you to feel the weight of it and feel the weight of this nature being kind of attempting, nature being <laughs> attempted to be harnessed. Mm-hmm being attempted to be controlled and yeah. yet you still can't escape the fact that you know to a greater or lesser degree you are still just in the forest you know you're in this this massive sort of natural construction mm-hmm. and you really bring that to light in the be- in the John Dutton's bedroom we really we really I, f- I really felt it there the claustrophobic nature and because the bedroom is smaller than the great room is anyway you really, the way you position the camera, you really got the sense of the wood, the log walls being much bigger than they really are. That they are, you know, a burden on him. They're like the oak of, of oxen that he's tied to. Yeah. And I just, and totally. I just thought it was so spectacular watching scenes like that that you set up and shot that. With a television series, you rarely, rarely, if ever, get this kind of visual metaphor that you have brought to Yellowstone, and it is a joy to watch this and what it adds to the to the series. I'm so so glad to hear that. I really am. I, I feel like there is um, the bar has been raised very very high in in recent years. Yeah. You know, by um, a couple of sort of select shows in particular. Obviously, there's, you know, we can all talk about Game of Thrones. It's just remarkable every time. Um, but also some of the other 
um, projects like The Crown, where you know there is there is a new cinematic scale and a new cinematic scope that is being brought to the to what used to be the small screen. Because let's face it, most people are now watching this on you know pretty giant screens. I mean, mm-hmm. even. You know, the, the, you can buy a, a, a three hundred dollar sort of fifty five inch screen. So I feel like it that, and, and there has to be something that accounts for um, you know Netflix's massive kind of permeation into the into mm-hmm. the, um, the industry and into the world. Um, so I did feel like there was an opportunity to just, and as you see, we shot it in a two to one um, ratio, mm-hmm. which I really actually enjoyed. It was a it was a sort of struggle at first to sort of wrap my head around, are we going to go with 16 by 9? Which, you know, I don't dislike it entirely. There's something about that ratio piece to the 185 movie. Um, I've shot a couple of other 185 movies. But there's something about it, especially in an in a environment like a like like the Montana landscape, where I just feel it, it, it makes the world seem smaller somehow. Mm-hmm. And we obviously couldn't go to a full... 239 aspect that, you know, nobody um, in television shoots and broadcasts that way. I just don't think we'd have got it. But that two to one has become something that is is um, a little bit more accepted and understood was was a delight. And, and framing within that was really wonderful. Um, it allowed us to kind of, one of my favorite tricks was to do wide shots on longer lenses mm-hmm. so that the, the mountain and the and the the hills in the background didn't sort of diminish, but in fact were exaggerated in scale. So mm-hmm. you just constantly have this sense of this vast environment in which these very real, very sort of profound struggles between people were taking place. But I kind of wanted this reminder constantly that we are still just animals in a wilderness. And, and at the end of the day, you know, lives will end and generations will come again and the world will go on. I think that's what Dutton is struggling with is, you know, obviously Kevin is bringing this wonderful portrayal of a man who is kind of realizing his mortality as he, as he sort of looks back on his life and looks at his children and wondering what's next and what will it be that, that endures. And just what would Yellowstone be without music? to capture and really bring to life the time and place of history, of present, of the different cultures that we're experiencing, from the ranchers to the Native Americans. Brian Tyler does an amazing, amazing job with the, with the scoring for Yellowstone. And as I mentioned earlier, the individual themes and individual signature Song, musical excerpts that fill each episode are exquisitely done and very telling uh, and dependent upon the storyline in that particular plot point, such as we're talking about the railroad infiltrating and coming in to certain regions. And you can, you can detect the sound of a, an almost choo-choo kind of sound in his orchestrations and his arrangements with what he's done. He calls on various instrumentations that are not typical. So take a listen to what Brian had to say in this excerpt of working on the music, the scoring for Yellowstone. With what you've done with Yellowstone, I am in love with oh, it. thank you. You really... That one, it, you really... You know, it's funny because the, the line now seems to have blurred between what's considered television and what's considered film. And, you know, Taylor Sheridan came to me and, and he, he was talking about it. And at one point it was... You know, he was just kind of treating it like, um, you know, he was, he was going to do a, a long-form, you know, uh, filmed... Story and uh, we kind of really treated it like a film. I mean, you know, it had all the the earmarks of what a film was. You know, uh, he directed and wrote all the episodes, and then we scored live with the Philharmonia of London. You know, with an orchestra and and just you know treated it really like it was a uh, 
you know, like a ten hour, twelve hour movie. Mm-hmm. So that that was the that was the approach and and talk about emotion. I mean that is all about you know tragedy and triumph and betrayal and love and uh, jealousy and you know, all those things. So it had to re- it's actually quite a melancholy um, score at times. Uh, very heartbreaking. It really is, but something that you also capture with your score and these individual pieces that comprise it, you have a great sentimentality for the Old West because you continually, number one, you start with strings. And I can't remember the last time I've listened to a score that has so many pieces with a viola or a cello. Yeah, to get right. that really deep, resonant breathing, almost the yeah. heartbeat of the Old West. And you, it really is. And you it's do that school. here. Yeah, you, you know, it's interesting about Yellowstone and the, the approach with it. It was that you, you, you kind of I studied up on the, the Old West a bit just to kind of see what, you know, even though this is a modern tale, the Old West, it has those, you know, it has that shadow uh, over every cowboy hat and uh and and rancher that's out there story about ranchers and and uh cowboys basically but you know it's it's um the the music of the old west is really imported music in a sense from immigrants that came here mm-hmm. they were pioneers that walked across uh, you know the, the land um and it would it would be things any instrument that they could bring from for instance Europe or wherever they were from, um, for instance, we just take Ireland, for instance, people with Irish immigrants would bring, um, you know, their fiddles. They, they weren't, wouldn't be from necessarily the highest upper class of, of, um, of Europe, and so they would have maybe slightly um, more humble roots with their instruments. So they wouldn't be Stradivarius violins. They'd be what we now know as fiddle. Mm-hmm. And as uh, they got and they kind of traveled across you know, uh, to the West, um, you know, really under hardship, they would need entertainment and they'd play their instruments, but they would really be gypsy-styled instruments from Europe that became American because they became folk instruments, really, again. So that was really how, why I based it around those instruments. It was like going back to what the root of even the Old West was, uh, uh, kind of that mythological feel of, old instrumentation. Mm-hmm. And it's funny you mention Ireland because one of the segments, one of the of the uh, interludes, Valley of the Soul, is very mournful, almost like an Irish whale in a castle. Yes. Uh, oh, for sure. No, you, you, you nailed it. That that uh, That is in the style of an old Irish folk tune that, that really is, um, you know, the, the, it would be played over drones, you know, and back in the day, and they would be very much um, very plaintive. They, they were almost like the songs of sorrow or, or songs of joy, and they would be play at both uh, historically at, at weddings and funerals. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and that was, it would be one fiddle player playing against kind of a set tone, you know, and, and I wanted to capture that as well. There's all sorts of fascinating roots to the American music that, that go back to um, things things like that and uh, you, you nailed it with that with, with finding a piece that, that has its uh, roots immediately in that kind well, of genre and even I listen to something like the Code White and to me that just speaks to trains the trains are coming um, right. that, that whole sound that you have it's just like the, the trains t- reeling on the tracks yeah yeah it really has that kind of chugging feel <laughs> um yeah, it, it, it's funny because, you know, all the the kind of percussive um, momentum of the score, Taylor, the director, and I, we talked about, we didn't want to do it with percussion, so we would do it with things like strings. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, it, and and what, how it turned out, it kind of would sound either like kind of an anthropomorphization of trains or horses, you know, kind of rumbling across. Mm-hmm. You know, in both ways, um, you know, it gives you that feeling of motion. Well, even in the in the overall theme, you know, which is filled with shades of the old west, and you, it even yeah. sounds like you might have an Asian gong in there, like the Chinese immigrants that came in. But yeah, then, for sure. but you've got a beat that is like the clip clop of horses. 
Yes, yes, you're right. The the whole piece starts off as a, a nod to the railroad. You're, you're finding all the things. It's, it's crazy. I haven't even talked about these things really outside of the director and I. You're, you're, you've figured it all out. Uh, the opening is, yeah, it's absolutely a nod to the, the, um, the, the train tracks being laid down by the Chinese. And it's the, that's the first instrument you hear right at the top of yeah. the... Um, of the of the theme, uh, the big Tam uh, Asian Gong basically was called a Tam Tam, and um, and then of course that that uh, that mournful cello comes in with the main theme again the 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 low trombones and brass uh, it kind of has a dirge feel almost um, mm-hmm. to it and uh, and then the, the cello plays very very high and the viola as you said it kind of has that. Very emotional, folksy feel, uh, and uh, it's it's pretty. Um, it, it was very different for me too, coming right out of a few different projects that didn't sound anything like it. It was really nice to be able to, you know, uh, stretch and and do things that were out of the box for what I kind of known for. Yeah, I mean, these are so different. The soundtrack for Yellowstone is so different than anything of yours that I have heard. But it really is. It comes down to the instrumentation that you're using that is the real standout. I don't think I've ever heard any piece that you have composed where strings are utilized as much as they are here. Yeah, they're starkly front and center. Um, and I think part of that was this edict at the beginning that we we really weren't going to use any percussion. Um, and so what happens is the strings kind of jump into the forefront and have to carry the day. And this whole score could be performed live with um, without any kind of modern, you know, element, with the exception of maybe one piece on there. But on the whole... Um, this is something that is very natural and human and has kind of the, the, the way the melodies are played. Also, there was no going back and correcting it and trying to get it pitch perfect. Mm-hmm. This was something where we wanted to leave the human flaws in the actual recording, the musical kind of um, rough edges. Then We didn't want to polish those off and make it too clean and perfect. So you hear some of that human kind of tuning and, and tr- the, the element of many players coming together and try to t- attempting to tune perfectly but never being quite able to. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like the opposite of singing with auto-tune. Uh, this score, it's, um, it's really not going back and overdoing, trying to make it perfectly clean. Um, so we wanted to, it's like the furthest away from the computer we could get was, was the goal. But what's so beautiful about it is because you do hear the small human flaws, and they really it, the music serves as a great metaphor for the patriarch John Dutton. Yes. Who? Oh, yeah. The, it really the music is synonymous with him. Yeah. The, the the idea that a character could be that wrapped up um, in in his own uh, kind of pursuit of power, yet love his family, but at the same time, he was not able to get out of his own way enough mm-hmm. to not have it come back and boomerang back and, and hurt the very ones he loved, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and those those human flaws, we, you know, we all struggle with them ourselves, but he kind of is that personification of regret. Um, and, uh, and as the story goes, it just keeps on... The, 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 keep on twisting ever more and it gets more and more emotional and it continues with as the story continues is now I'm in the second uh, we just you know finished up the, the second the second and, season uh, yeah and it really the, the story just keeps it's really amazing and um, I think very powerful uh, uh, and so I'm, I'm just really trying to support Taylor with his vision and that character of Dutton is you know, John Dutton is is, uh, is really a, a kind of a great character because we, there is iconic, but it has that mythological flavor. I mean, it goes all the way back to King Lear, and you know, mm-hmm. it's it's, um, uh, it's it's a classic character. 
character, but set in this really unique setting, and um, and and so these themes are really about him and his family, and and the loss, and the also the the games. You know, it's, it's about both sides. Oh, absolutely, and I think. Am I not mistake? Am I mistaken, or do you actually use some chimes in a few places, like in your Expansive Horizons piece? It sounds yeah, like yeah. you may have some chimes in there, mm-hmm. um, and also when uh, your piece, the river. I love that piece. It is one of the lighter pieces that you have yeah. in the track, but yes. it sounds just like you have moments. It sounds like the trickling of water the, as the water the, it rills over the rocks in the river. Yeah, it, that's exactly right. It's the you know the, that river that is in that's featured in the in the series um, is is kind of represents also. There's there's a, there's a, a, two things going here. There's things where they that brings the family together. And they're fishing and doing their thing, but it's also ends up being kind of a political barrier um, uh-huh. about territory and that and that's a piece that, that kind of is about the 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 former it has that um, kind of language feeling of, of letting the your worries wash away um, mm-hmm. and uh, and it gives you kind of comfort in, in a sense uh, but if you're not careful uh you know, the very thing that you can find comfort in can come back to haunt you. So there's parts of that river piece that got kind of twisted in later pieces that, that where you hear them very tonally and warmly in one place, and then it, it, they kind of twist and, and become very tragic at other times. Mm-hmm. Something that, that you very keenly do is with a lot of these pieces, um, for example, the Burying Secrets, uh, even proud thieves and the adagio, you've got right. your you have your strings going, but then you bring in a guitar with a singular right. pluck, and that is so old west. I immediately yeah. envisioned the cowboys on the trail. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you're, you're right. You know the the, the adagio kind of style strings are very. They, they have kind of that epic tone to them and, and, and very large emotion and then I think the guitar brings it back down to a very personal mm-hmm. scale because uh, you can hear even the guitar and unavoidably when I play the guitar and things you can hear my fingers kind of running across the strings yeah. it's imperfect you can hear me breathing all those things and we use the guitar and also the dobro which is kind of a it's a type of guitar that's an old kind of a, a west guitar that has a resonator in it um, and, you know, the idea of kind of sitting, you know, going across the range on your horse playing guitar, that's also comes, that sound comes from a practicality that these, these, these old ranchers, old pioneers, all the early Americans had riding horse and, 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 uh, bringing their families across the, the, the new land, you know, and, uh, it, it was a form of entertainment. So that's all the time we have today. Until June 3rd, when we're back after the Memorial holiday, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.